I think like most people, where where I where I am spiritually has evolved so much in my life, and in some ways, where my daily practice today is often more of a reflection of where I've come from than something new today. Welcome back to the Array of Faith podcast. I'm your host, J. Dana Trent, Professor of World Religions and Critical Thinking at Wake Tech Community College. I'm joined by our producer, Fred, also known as Goravani Das. Welcome to Season 2 of Array of Faith, and we are so excited because one of our very favorite people in the whole world is here to kick off Season 2. Two, and that is Ray Buckley, who is speaking with us all the way from Palmer, Alaska. And we are so excited. We're so excited that the cat is here with us. If you hear a cat purring, it's because Truffle Hunter the cat has also decided that he wants to join in and hear Ray's wisdom. Ray is the interim director of the Center for Native American Spirituality and Christian Study. He's taught in Nigeria, Ghana, and all across the world, serving as a lecturer in Native American studies for many universities. He's the author and illustrator of many books, including a hard, um, It's Hard to Dance with the Devil on Your Back, It's Hard to Dance with the Devil, God's Love is Like, the giveaway, the wing, Christmas moccasins, dancing with words, and he is also an illustrator. Ray is of Lakota, Clinkett, and Scots descent, and he has served the United Methodist Church as a staff member on their publishing house and director of Native People's Communication Office for nine years. And he's also served as the director of Connectional Ministries for the Alaska Missionary Conference. Ray's stories, poetry, and art have appeared in many journals, periodicals, books, and museums. Ray, we are so glad you're here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dana. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, we are so honored. And Ray, this is a dream come true because our students have have seen you in our classroom virtually. They've watched your storytelling on recorded videos. They know about a bit about your tradition. They've read some of your work. But we're really excited because this season is all about the ways in which our identity, our communities, our stories, stories of origin, and the evolution of our faith traditions have shaped us. And for our students, these are really important things that they are thinking about right now as they are in the midst of their college journeys. So what I'd love to start out with is how would you describe your current religious and spiritual practice and perspective? What does it look like for you on a daily basis? My, uh, I, I think like most people, where where I where I am spiritually has evolved so much in my life, 
And in some ways where my daily practice today is often more of a reflection of where I've come from than something new today. My, uh, my f- faith, the culmination of what has become faith and experience has been shaped by so many things. Uh, just a brief, a brief history. In the early 1900s and late 1800s, the, the federal government established uh, uh, at Canton, uh, Oklahoma, sorry, Canton, South Dakota, the Canton Indian Insane Asylum. And at that time, uh, Native people who, particularly Native religious leaders who didn't give up their Native traditions, at, at just the mention by, by a a missionary that they were practicing native religion, men and women both could and often were sent to the insane asylum in Canton, South Dakota. Congress closed it down in the 1930s. And in the review of it, they discovered that that less than 2% of the people who had been sent there had any form of mental illness but they were all traditional spiritual leaders and so they had been moved there and many died and there was a mass grave that is there and and then also in the history of native people and religion in our country it was um, against the law to teach native children in their native languages in the hopes that that would kill the the native languages. And native native people weren't citizens until um, the 1920s. And so the the laws that protected many people um, did not protect native religions. I was in my final year of undergraduate school when um, uh, ICWA was was first passed, uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. Until that time, a third of Native children on reservations had been removed without consent or knowledge of their parents and adopted out. Their records were destroyed. They were sent from Canada to the U.S. and the U.S. to Canada. And... Um, it was the, the habit, Native religions were outlawed or not allowed to be practiced. And the freedom of religion that's in the Constitution, in the, the First Amendment to the Constitution, there are two clauses. One is uh, Congress uh, shall, or the United States, Congress shall not um, support the establishment uh, of any religion or this, that separation of church and state. And the free exercise clause, Native people, when they became citizens, they had the first, but they didn't have the right to free exercise of their religion. 
And so when I was college age, it still was allowed that the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs could disrupt religious experiences or sacred sites, drive trucks through while people were trying to worship at sacred sites, violence of trying to prohibit. And so native people did not often share their religion. And there was a whole host of things. We have our native events, Memorial Day, Labor Day, um, which we honor our ancestors and those that are dead. We clean up graveyards and leave food. We picked those days because those were the times when the soldiers had off. And um, so we could do, under the guise of having dancing and things, we could practice traditional dancing and some forms of traditional worship. So in the process of when I was growing up, I had grown up with culture. Um, I had grown up with the values, which, which really are the, the in, intrinsic element of religion, the values, the beliefs, even when practice wasn't allowed. Those elements of sharing, those elements of generosity, the importance of giving gifts, um, not just ordinary gifts, but gifts that have meaning, the importance of adopting people into your life was one of the seven sacred traditions of the Lakota. The importance of giving away your last food to make somebody hospitable by offering places where people could live the importance of honoring the earth, not taking away um, things that in which you did not give back and only taking what you need. And when you killed an animal because your people needed food, then you honored the animal, not as, as some anthropologists say, by offering a prayer to the animal, but by speaking to the spirit of the animal and thanking him or her for their gifts so that the people could live. Fasting, um, praying, uh, going to places alone to pray, inviting, inviting the guidance of that which is sacred into your lives. Those are things that were part of our lives, even people people like, like me who are multiracial, um, those were the elements that informed us before things like free exercise of religion was possible. And uh, it's still true in our country that um, we have free exercise, but sacred sites are controlled by the Bureau of Land Management. So my grandparents had become Christians in their faith, but they were kind of different. My grandparents didn't believe in my grandfather in cutting his hair. And I wore my hair long uh, about to my waist until I had cancer the first time. And, um, but he wouldn't cut his hair. And so they often weren't welcome in some churches. They um, 
federal government had assigned Christian groups to different native groups. And so if you were Christian by being Catholic, then all of a sudden you had to become a Methodist. <laughs> and um, the, the confusion was enormous and the switch of theologies was enormous. My grandparents were drawn, remained in their cultures, remained in the practice, but they were drawn to the Christian story by many of the things that they found that coincided with native things, such as giving and caring and forgiving and going the second mile, much more with the teachings of, of Jesus than with the history of the church. And so we were raised with a re enormous uh, mingling, um, not to the point where you confused either one, but had a respect for the other and lived those ways. So my, my faith journey now, I think particularly in where we are in, in history and the history of, of Christianity in America, I, um, I am practicing in my daily life intentional directives to live fully into the traditions that are not only Christian and native, but to practice them. Um, to not take from the earth more than I need and to give back. Um, I, I can't grow sweet grass. Uh, we don't have it naturally here. So I, I um, practicing giving away. This time in my life, um, my brother and I are older we're preparing not to die, but preparing for our death and finding the things that have value and people who can use them. So those are, those are intentional practices, um, both prayer and meditation that fit Christianity and my native traditions, honoring people of other traditions um, are all part of the way that that I choose to live now and are part of my own faith journey. That's lovely. Thank you, Ray. You've given us such a, a, a rich overview of both the history of your experiences, of your ancestors' experiences, but you know how they have also shaped the way you view practice today. And I think for our students, um, especially our multiracial students, our students who live in the Venn diagram that you so beautifully described of different traditions that aren't mutually exclusive, but that honor one another, that's going to be especially meaningful to them. And I, I think my follow-up question is, is this, for our students who who live in an in, in intersectionality, who are part of various groups, often minority groups, um, how, when they feel pressure from culture, um, 
to choose one, right? To, to choose one and, and be one thing as opposed to embracing an intersectionality of multiple identities and communities that have shaped them. Um, how, have you ever felt that pressure? And, and if you have or haven't, what, what wisdom would you have for them who, who are feeling the pressure to, to be only Christian or be only Native or be only Muslim from outside sources or even from within an internal pressure of being one thing rather than honoring the, multi, the, the concentric circles of their Venn diagram? Wow. <laughs> uh, Dana, that's an extremely important question and a, and a personal one for, for all of us. I had a, my mother was Scottish, but I, I never knew. Um, she did not um, know in a personal way her birth parents, but, um, at four o'clock in the afternoon, my mother would have tea. And um, there was so many elements of herself that she was always herself and um, welcomed within the communities in which we lived because she was just herself. Um, and, and, uh, and yet that, that when you ask if, if I felt that uh, absolutely. Um, there are times when, when the exterior of things uh, can prohibit the interior growth. Um, and, and in cases of people who are biracial, sometimes you're not brown enough. Sometimes you're too brown. Sometimes you are asked to pull in different directions. And there's always an incredible feeling of, uh, on some people's part, of guilt. Uh, the fact that they have to choose. I, I have known and know many Native people who are half Native like myself and are in positions of leadership in the church or elsewhere, where when they come to self-identification, they'll identify themselves as a, as a native person, which they are, but they will always omit the one parent. And just as our grandparents were asked to omit the native, we were told that we could not be native and Christian we could not speak our languages and in places in churches, we couldn't sing in them or sing uh, our old hymns or include things. And so our, our native grandparents were pressured to kill, literally kill the native. Um, that was the mandate over Carlisle Indian School, kill the Indian, save the child. And there is sometimes an element that says, if, if, if we are native, then we are not contemporary. <laughs> we can't like basketball and be native people. Um, and sometimes the, the shunning on either side of those 
issues can be very difficult. Um, in the interior family in which I was raised, um, there was no either or. Uh, the, the, the life, the values that we lived were part of how we lived every day. Uh, my, my father would go to um, Highland festivals for the sake of my mother and he would wear uh, a kilt and he looked like an Indian in drag, we used to tease him. Um, he expressed his love for her by also living within her culture. The other things I, I would encourage, I have found in all of the cultures of the world, yes moments, where when you speak and describe what you think is a native situation, somebody from Africa or the Ainu people in Japan or the people from Korea or South America will begin nodding their heads and say, yes, we have, we have this too. We had this experience before Western colonialism. This is part of us. And we have the same expressions from people in Ireland and people in Norway that says, yes, this, this is also part of us. And by living into who we are, we give permission uh, to other people to embrace who and what they are um, and to be able to live those things which had been pressed down from a legalist point of view, had been pressed down by laws and places all over the world. It isn't a matter of choosing. You come to a respect for yourself when it is a matter of being. What is, what is instrumental to yourself and your spiritual survival? I am what I am. And what I am is important to the world because if I'm not myself, then the world will be missing the contributions that only I can give. And I, I've heard my native brothers and sisters say, um, who are mixed blood like myself, they will say, at some point I had to choose, yes, at some point I had to choose whether to go forward in any of the walks of my life. I chose to participate in Sundance. It had meaning to me and to the people who were important in my life. Um, I chose to practice diverse ways of prayer that people in India understand and people in Iraq understand, and indigenous people all over the world. But if I don't choose them, if I don't choose them as part of my life, then I am not complete as a person. And so when I talk, I speak, I, I speak as Ray Buckley, who like so many others before me from multiple, multiple traditions, have the grace given to us from heritage and family that give us the strength to go on and to share with other people.
Thank you. Ray, one thing you said that um, that I really appreciate, well, there are many things you said, but one mm-hmm. thing in, in particular was um, you mentioned that often just by being oneself, um, that that often gives permission for others um, to perhaps be themselves or to um, become more comfortable with practices or perspectives that, that may have been repressed or ignored. Um, I'm curious if um, kind of along those lines, um, when you mentioned that a lot of native practices were, um, you know, modified or adapted because of the um, oppressive influences in place, is there any kind of rediscovery going on either in internal to the community or via inspiration outside of the community. Mm. Thank you for that, Fred. That, um, yes. Um, native cultures are, are vital growing cultures. It's hard to remember that out of the millions of indigenous people in, in our country alone, that at the beginning of the 1900s, there were only 250,000 remaining. And in California, it was illegal to, it was legal to sell native people into slavery until the Emancipation Proclamation. And um, in in parts of the Southeast, um, the Indian slave trade was uh, an enormous part of early settlement um, in in the southeast. So, languages and cultures uh, died by disease and um, enslavement, uh, genocide, and and other factors. Those are places where we cannot retrieve. We can we can look at art forms and say, perhaps our ancestors did it in this way and and study and we can recreate culture but there's also another part of that growing edge the Kiowa tribe for instance was a Sundance culture and voted to remove the practice of sun dancing from their culture not because of, of Christian influence, although I'm sure that that played part in the struggle for it, but because theirs was, their Sundance was intricately tied with the migration of the buffalo and the role of the buffalo in their life. And when the buffalo no longer existed for all intents and purposes, the Kiowa said, we cannot practice Sundance in its intentional form within our culture because there are no more buffalo. And in that way, the the Kiowas made a choice to alter traditional religion practice by what was happening in the world around them. There's always an intent. Um, Native cultures haven't died Um, In the times when it was illegal 
to practice them. Um, they were often hidden. The first public sun dance um, without interference of churches or Indian agents on Pine Ridge was in the 70s. Um, the people who could still keep the Sundance, who knew its traditions, um, those people who could do those things brought them back. And so always within oral history, oral cultures, there's the realization that the closest we come to what was in the past are in those who are living that can transmit it orally to us. And so oral culture, um, keeping alive the traditions, and in a way you are doing that because we don't share them unless we are face to face. And doing this by podcast or by Zoom enables us to be face to face with our children who are scattered about. We practice the gathering of salmon, for instance, in Clinket culture, that first salmon that comes and there's a celebration because our lives are connected or we're connected to the salmon. And so we have singing and rituals and things that welcome the salmon. We take salmon eggs back in some cultures in a, a basket lined with moss and we put them in rivers where there haven't been salmon migrations and our women have done that, but they've done that for thousands of years and still do that. And we take salmon wherever we are eating and we take the salmon bones, even if we're in a restaurant and wrap them in a towel. And when we pass by a water body of water, we put the bones of the salmon back in the water. Those are odd things we would think for doctors and teachers and construction workers and people to do, to get out and put those bones back in. But it's the lifeblood of, of a culture that teaches us that as we honor and choose to live, we can create ongoing life um, into the world. So in, in recovering the things that were lost, um, my family is basket makers. Uh, my, my brother who, who is not native, but was adopted into our family, um, makes beautiful baskets. We often, because we can, we can, go to museums and sit with white gloves and repair baskets from other, other times and look at them. And that weaving perform, um, the weaving of the basket is an integrity. So the way it's woven, the way it's tied, um, the prayer that goes into it, you don't sit down and teach somebody to make a basket, but you make a basket with someone with prayer and give them the materials to pick it up and do it and guide their hands. So that same process of integrity a building something with is done literally every day. We rediscover something old and we celebrate it and we pull it in, but the integrity is what is remaining and we fill in the gaps. We, we may not be able to 
practice our languages anymore, but particularly in places like the Southeast, tribes who don't have language still have seed keepers, which have continued from generations who keep the traditional seeds of their people year after year after year, or Cherokee fire keepers or Seminole or Creek fire keepers who kept the embers of their tribes alive on the Trail of Tears and so went in places like Oklahoma could incite, I like that word, it's a dangerous word in the last days of our, of our time, but they could incite the coal to flame and thereby have a continuity of a continual flame that goes back generations. And you can get those seeds. Children in your com community can find places where those seeds are shared and can grow those plants in their gardens. So that there is enormous effort um, every day to repair the breach to fix the walls, to bring back integrity to cultures. But another realization is as living, breathing cultural bearers, we alter cultures sometimes by intention. And when we alter it by intention, we are also serving to strengthen and guide our people into the future. Thank you so much, Ray. Wow. I, I Something that you said really struck me about oral culture, oral tradition, and our students learn about indigenous narratives as, you know, powerful sources of sacred truth. And one thing that, that didn't occur to me until we were just having this conversation is that you're, of course, you're exactly right. Face-to-face -face matters so much in Native communities. And so to that effect, um, including the, the question that Fred just asked you about rediscovery, intention, practices, you've named quite wonderful examples of, of Native practices. What, in light of the pandemic, how, how are practices taking shape virtually or or not face-to-face -face or in-face, in-person, how does that look given the pandemic when it is indeed an oral culture that has historically happened face-to-face -face with practices? It, it's been a difficult time. Um, <clears throat> I don't know of, of other communities we we, we don't have a, a, a lot of vaccine here. We don't have hardly any vaccine. Um, in, in 1918, excuse me, <clears throat> 1918 Spanish flu, 60% of, of Alaska Native people died of the influenza. And that's just in Alaska. Uh, 90 some odd percent of the Aleuts had been sold into slavery by the Russians a um, hundred years earlier or had been killed or died of disease. And it was a time that when sometimes missionaries came, they would talk about judgments, judgments of God. <clears throat> 
and how that if you didn't quit your tribal dancing or the other things, that this was God's judgment. Um, there's a powerful notion uh, among native people of this understanding of who we are as human beings, human beings. And that translates to all the human beings of the world. And sometimes disease on top of multi-generational trauma creates this understanding that who I am as a human being is no longer important. That it may be where I live, it may be my culture, it may be my country, as we so often mistakenly try to attribute to people, that my human beingness is less than, than others. So this understanding, if we're talking Lakota culture, touching and giving away, the, the two most important elements of our spirituality, to touch someone else, not always physically, but emotionally, to touch someone else, allow them to touch you, to be given to, and also to give away to, are the means by which we grow spiritually. And I would sometimes challenge my theologian friends to say that I believe is also the essence of Christianity, <laughs> touching and, and giving away, as it is with many religions of the world. We, yes, in our villages here, mm -hmm. in, in, in our villages here, so many people um, are sick in native communities across the country where there is less available medical care, where there are not clinics in communities, people are very ill. And we go to those communities sometimes. And what we can do is wear a mask and a shield because people burn wood, we chop wood and leave it at their door because people don't have, in many cases, running water or indoor toilets. They use honey buckets. And somebody who is ill, they cannot empty their honey bucket or get wood or cook food. So you go to those places, you dress, <laughs> someone leaves their honey bucket, you empty it, sterilize it, bring it back, bring them wood. And you do that in shifts in communities so that those who are ill, you take care of and the ground is frozen here, so it's very difficult to bury the dead. But you are there at people's windows and you are there talking. And even if you may not be allowed to touch, you prepare foods in safe ways and you give it to people as an offering. And that brief eye connection becomes the touching and the giving away. And you converse through walls like prisoners. You converse through walls to people and talk on the phone when you have it. And you do everything you can to be the salmon bone to each other. And that, that is what we are doing. That is what we are doing. Mm, that's so beautifully said. Wow, wow. 
Oh my goodness, I'm going to take a deep breath. And I know our students are taking a deep breath as they hear this too, because for so many of our students um, who are not Native, very few of our students are, are Native, but of course there's a rich Native history in North Carolina. It's, it's just unbelievable to think about um, what, it, what it is like to live in a Native community right now in Alaska and when the tradition is touching and giving away and yet you are finding ways to care for one another's basic needs and one another spiritually and that is amazing absolutely amazing and i know will have a huge impact on our students as they as they hear this and Ray, you you have you practice touching and giving away in my life and Fred's life with the many many gifts and stories that you have shared with us over the years. And when we are in person with students, of course, I, I share the medicine wheel and Lakota prayer ties and self offering stick. And I do not do your stories justice, and so I, I send them to many spaces on the internet to hear your voice and hear the oral culture, even from far away. So you are touching and giving away to students here in North Carolina whom, whom you've never met. Mm -hmm. You have a tremendous impact on them, and I am so grateful for you. That's, that's so humbling. Thank yeah. you, Dana. Yes, well, it is true. It is absolutely true. And they are, and I can't wait to get back into the seated classroom because students, Ray, just generously set another round of, of wonderful gifts of native icons and um, herbs for rituals. Um, and so we are, I'm just eager for the students to to hear more. And this has been such an, a wonderful opportunity for them to hear directly from you in, in a face-to-face -face setting as best we can do in the pandemic and to receive, quite frankly, a tremendous education in a short podcast episode that brings the um, historic atrocities that they've read about in their textbook to life. They've heard it now from someone whose ancestors have lived it, whose community has lived it, and it will make an impact on their hearts too. And I, I'm convinced forever change the way they think and feel um, about Native traditions and what they know about Native cultures in America. And so I'm grateful to you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. Well, this has been such a gift and I hope you will return to the podcast. And my, my hope <laughs> is, is that too, that we'll get to see one another in actual face-to-face, person-to-person, post-pandemic. And, um, and just thank you again, Ray, for all your many gifts and for um, your time for, for being with our students in this timely way for them as well. Thank you. You are welcome. I'm glad to do it. And Fred, it's so nice to, to see you and meet you. Uh, I feel like I know you already. So I, I thank you just to sit down and visit with you on this, on this day, miles apart.
<laughs> Likewise, Ray. Dana says, always has such nice things to say about you and um, it just talks about you almost every day. So yeah, I, I also feel like I know you and this has been time well spent. Yes, thank you, Ray. And thank you students for listening to this first tremendous episode, informative, emotional, poignant, authentic episode of season two of Array of Faith. Our guest has been Ray Buckley, and we are so delighted that he's been here with us. Until next time. <laughs>